Hello, Vancouver, and welcome to Canucks Talk. I'm Thomas Trance. You're listening to Sportsnet 650, and today I'm riding solo. Jamie Dodd away with illness on IR. We'll get him back shortly and get back to our normally scheduled programming later this week. It's a big show today, but before we begin with the whiteboard, let's pay the bills. We're coming to you live, of course, from the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics is Canada's favorite orthotics provider. Supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews, find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. And of course, whenever we do this show alone, we never really do it alone because you're part of it, the audience. And we're going to need your interaction more than ever today as we leg it through a two-hour solo episode. You can contribute to the show by using the Dunbar Lumber text line, 650-650, text in, engage with us. We'll get to some of your texts over the balance of this two-hour program. And Dunbar Lumber, of course, has three stores to serve you. In Ladner on Bridge Street, Dunbar Lumber Express at Ladner Center, or Arbutus in Vancouver. You can also visit them online, thanks to the magic of e-commerce, at DunbarLumber.com. All right, that's it. Lots happened with the Canucks this weekend, two afternoon games. Without further ado, let's recap it all and get to the whiteboard. All right now, fellas, hey, let's focus up, huh? We begin at the whiteboard with headlines. The Canucks take three points out of four possible points with a shootout loss to the Minnesota Wild and a victory against the Chicago Blackhawks in a tough road back-to-back this weekend. Uh, they, they managed this really quality, like high-quality results, despite what I think you could say was poor play for the most part. I, I, I'd say five out of six periods, uninspired hockey from the Canucks, but ruthlessly effective hockey as they did what they should have. Uh, uh, there's so much to unpack from these games, and we'll sort of go through it um, one by one here. But the first thing that I want to talk about is the is the global context. It's tough to go west to east in terms of time zones. It's especially tough to go west to east in terms of time zones when you played on Thursday and now you've got two games that start early in the day, afternooners, in two different cities, Minnesota and Chicago. By the time you get to that Chicago game, you're playing a third and four, you've moved time zones. I mean, there's a lot of context. Like, you know, we would call that game in Chicago a schedule loss. And I think this is really crucial context because people don't like to hear about millionaire athletes being fatigued but guess what they're still people they're still human beings there's a reason that like the U.S. Army (laughs) takes player performance and fatigue really seriously in planning ops you know obviously an NHL team is going to be subject to the same levels uh, of wear tear uh, and load that the that any human body even even the most finely tuned human bodies are And I think we saw that in the first period. Like, I'm not concerned about the fact that the Canucks struggled in the opening 20 minutes against the Chicago Blackhawks or or the fact that the Chicago Blackhawks had a 2-1 lead in the second period. Um, I I give a lot of credit to this Canucks team. They played one of their best periods of the year, granted against one of the worst teams in the NHL, in that second period, sort of turning that frame on its head and really demolishing the Blackhawks. Like, at some point, they got tired of being down in that game, decided that their talent should win out, and went about making it making it happen. Um, third line, the Connor Garland line, I think needs... Now, I know Ray Ferraro's mad at me on Twitter. He says you always have to talk about a line with the, with the center's name first, and obviously that's true within the context of a hockey team. But 
Dakota Joshua and Connor Garland, ever since their fight at training camp, have been tied together on a line. And actually, Suter and Bluger have kind of split time 50-50. So if we're going to talk about this line in totality, I feel like it's important to define it based off of its wingers as opposed to the rotating centermen uh, that have filtered through there. But Joshua, Bluger, Garland, as it's currently composed, with Garland being, in my opinion, and we'll get into this a little bit more with Batch, the, the clear straw that stirs the drink there, They've been Vancouver's best five-on-five line, and it isn't particularly close, even if it is surprising. You know, that team dragged the Canucks into the fight. That team scored Vancouver's only goal in Minnesota. They were responsible, largely, for keeping this team's head above water in in a tough set. And you need that. You need your depth pieces sometimes to carry the mail. Vancouver's depth pieces carried the mail with that line in particular, getting some of the offensive bounces that have eluded them, despite the fact that it's been a month and a half now, six weeks at least, maybe eight, honestly, maybe since the start of the season, that that line, in combination with whether it's Suter or Bluger, has just been Vancouver's most reliable line at driving a territorial edge five-on-five. Now the bounces are showing up, and it matters. It matters. Like, forward depth, we've been talking about it a lot. Forward depth is one of the true strengths of this team, like one of their five real core true strengths. And it showed up this weekend in a big way when they needed it to. Uh, One thing to note, the power play, one of nine on the weekend. So they had a lot of opportunities across two games, Uh, only got one goal for their efforts. And, you know, the bottom six, one of this team's true strengths stepped up for them. Their goaltending was great. Another one of their true strengths. Some of the other things that occasionally this team's able to lean on, their their power play and the play of their star players, um, quieter. We're quieter in this weekend's set of games. Um, I'm not worried about this team's power play. Like One thing about the Canucks, they're they're still converting on 25% of their power play opportunities. And actually that, as good as that is, like sixth in the league... As good as that is, that actually underrates how good Vancouver's been with the man advantage, in my opinion. This team's plus 29 goal differential across 32 games uh, on the power play. They are almost getting spotted a 1-0 lead before the game even starts because of how good their power play is and how many penalties they draw with guys like Garland and Patterson and even depth players like Mark Friedman when he's in the lineup being absolute savants at the black art of, of drawing a penalty here in the whistle. That said, you know, we're we're in a bit of a cool stretch. Like that this has cooled for the Canucks on the power play. And a lot of that is shooting percentage, right? That they're shooting 10% on the power play for the month of December. That's lower than their 5 on 5 shooting clip. So, uh granted their 5 on 5 shooting clips gangbusters, but nonetheless, some of that is simple regression. But there is more going on. The the shots on goal are less frequent, the scoring chances are less frequent. Uh, the profile of who's taking these shots is less frequent, and and frankly, so is the conversion efficiency. Like we're talking about a team that through November thirtieth was converting on one in three power play opportunities, thirty three percent, literally in the first month and a half of the year. Incredible stuff. Since then, uh, they've got I think it's eight power play goals on forty seven opportunities. That's off the top of my head. You can you can look it up. That's since December first. In any event, it's in and around fifteen percent. So this club's not generating goals. They're not generating shots at the same rate that they were on the power play. And and one thing that's kind of changed 
really since about mid-November, so since right before the Canucks power play kind of hit this mini divot, of which I'm confident they'll pull out of, by the way. Um, Kuzmenko got pulled from the net front and now lives at the left side half wall, which takes JT Miller to the net front. Rick Tockett's power play is designed to move. Uh, when this power play is functioning the right way, all of Miller, Kuzmenko, and Besser should be getting looks from the half wall, from the bumper, from the net front. But where you start still determines a lot of, you know, where you're passing and shooting from. And, you know, we've reached a point where JT Miller is, if you were to draft the smartest human beings on the planet at, at navigating the intricacies of an NHL power play, Miller would be in consideration for the number one pick. I think you'd pick McDavid ahead of him. I think you'd pick Kucherov ahead of him. And then I think you'd pick Miller with, like, Artemi Panarin and Leon Dreisaitl being the other. This is the company that this guy's in. And when you put him to the net front, I, I do think you sort of remove the, like, a f the brain, the krang, as it were, of the Canucks power play. Um with the puck in his hands, he helps make sure that the shots are from the most efficient spots on the ice. And what we're seeing right now is like Besser's shot rate has exploded. Miller's is up a little bit. Pedersen's is actually up a little bit. Quinn Hughes's has fallen massively. And that makes sense. Like, think about what the Canucks power play looks like with JT Miller faking that wrist shot from the left circle and then doing that little drop pass, that no-look drop pass to Quinn, right? Think about the way that Miller finds Pedersen. And then it goes back door to whether it's Besser or Kuzmenko, or it's it's one of those classic shots. And obviously, Pedersen just had a beautiful power play finish uh, this weekend. Rick Tockett's explained that he wants to develop Kuzmenko because of his right-handed shot, and we know the politics of making sure that Kuzmenko is in the lineup. And Kuzmenko didn't play much this weekend, right? Like he was heavily marginalized in both of those games uh, over the weekend. So there, there's some politics at play, but also he's talking about wanting to develop Kuzmenko as a right-handed shot into a one-timer threat from that left circle. And I think Rick Tockett's earned the benefit of the doubt from us in that if he thinks there's a long-term dividend to be mined from developing Kuzmenko there, I, I trust him. That <laughs> guy knows more about the power play than me. But I, I do think we're seeing a little bit of a short-term trade-off in not having Miller be the guy, the heartbeat, the metronome, effectively the maestro conducting things for the Canucks five on four from his usual spot on his downhill side. So just a thing that I noticed in this, those games, I was watching the power play with a level of confidence that the Canucks weren't going to score as opposed to earlier in the season where every time an opponent took a penalty, it felt inevitable that they would. Uh, Zadorov fought Pedersen. We're going to get into Zadorov a little more when we get into the broadsheet, but loved that. I loved that, and, uh, and I'll get into it more, but I, I thought that was an interesting moment and an interesting debate point, especially given that he ends up taking a ton of power plays in a two or a ton of penalties in a two-goal game. Canucks have to finish the game with only five defensemen because he took 17 minutes of power plays or of penalties, excuse me. Um, and Chicago scores on the ensuing power play opportunity, making it a one-goal game. You still got to do it. You still got to have a guy willing to step up like that. I loved that from Zadorov. Um, PK beginning to look robust too as Miller and Pedersen play fewer minutes. More yeoman's work from guys further down lineup for the Canucks. Less contributions from their superstar players. Here's the other headline item. Thatcher Demko named the NHL's second star. Goaltending performances carried the Canucks this weekend. Demko was especially good when Chicago laid it on thick 
in the opening 25 minutes of the game on Sunday. Uh, Three wins this week. He'd been scuffling just a little bit going into this week. Like, going into Tuesday's game, last Tuesday's game, he was 877 across a month of performance. And the expected goals models said that he was below expectation, uh, which is a huge deviation from where he'd been in the first month of the season, where he's one of the NHL's absolute unquestioned best goaltenders. Thatcher Demko found his form this week, one of the NHL's three stars. Congratulations to him. He's stabilized in a major way and was Vancouver's best player over the course of this past week. All right, let's get to the broadsheet. Donnie and Dolly bring in, bring in the heat with some talking points this week. Zadorov wants term. That's the report from Rick Dollywall. He's going to ask for and he wants term, Dollywall noted and noted prominently that Milstein was tweeting the money sign <laughs> after a particularly good Zadorov performance last week. Now, this is a player who's been incredibly composed, and his game's been actually quiet in a good way since he arrived in Vancouver. We haven't got the fireworks, the chaotic fireworks that I expected, um, and, and that I still expect occasionally from Zadorov, given his aggressiveness in every phase of the game. Aggressiveness, by the way, that I think you can live with, especially given his global uh, defensive impact, which is which is, is very positive, tends to be very positive. Um, I think we have to be a little bit careful in evaluating the impact he's made in Vancouver. Uh, and this is sort of the context I want to wrap around Dolly Wall's reporting here. The fight that he had standing up for Patterson, I actually think that's a good indicator of his unique value and his unique profile, right? Because he brings something different than most of the other Canucks D. Like Cole plays with some snarl. snarl. Noah Juleson plays with some snarl. Myers occasionally will throw a big hit, like, like the one he threw on Keith a few years ago. But... But this guy, Nikita Zadorov, he's a real heavy, both in terms of how he plays, but also how he carries himself. And, that, and that's vital. When you combine that aspect, that unique physical value that a six foot six, 250 pound defenseman brings with a reasonable skill level, like the ability to actually make plays a pretty good shot from the point, and his penchant for making a positive defensive impact, like I think you've got a player that's worth extending, that's worth keeping um I think if you're able to keep him at one of those like classic Tanev Brody type UFA deals you know four years four four-ish million uh you can get value out of that in my opinion the buyer beware parts of this arise and they always arise there's always trade-offs always risks when you're talking about extending a player in in a hard cap world um the buyer beware parts I think arise when you start talking about more than that in term and money. Um, you know, we know the cap's going to go up by $4 million. Zadorov's going to be on the right side of 30. Uh, I'm not the only guy who sees the unique physical profile. Like, there's a lot of teams that would like this guy. There could be a pretty hot market for his services. And, and that's something you have to navigate and be careful with because if things get a little bit silly, you know, I think if you get into a point where you're paying him like a 2-3 defenseman, you're, you're going to end up signing a contract that, is inefficient. That makes it tough to sort of flesh out this defense core, especially in the context of what this organization is going to hopefully be able to commit to Pedersen and also Philip Hironik should those guys go long on their second or third contracts in, in both players' cases. The other thing you have to be careful about, I think, is evaluating his impact in Vancouver since arriving. So it's been eight games and he's played really well. Again, quiet around him in terms of 
everything. The defensive side of the game. His, he's thrown a couple signature hits. He had a signature fight standing up for Pedersen. Like, you love all, all of that. He's looked great since arriving in Vancouver. The club has outscored their opponents 5-on-5, five 6-2, five, with Zadorov on the ice so far. Uh, but this is where you have to be a little careful. He's rocking a 109 PDO, and that's hiding any gaps in his defensive play. Meanwhile, right, there, there is an emerging gap between his performance, right, and, and the underlying profile here. Um, he, his shot attempt differentials among the worst of any Vancouver defender since he joined the club, and the team has been outshot with him on the ice five on five. So I think this is a guy that you can and should pursue an extension with, especially given how unique he is as a player. But in my view, you need to be careful about doing that deal off of what he's accomplished in Vancouver so far. That 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 can't be the thing, because the way he's performed for Vancouver is at least partly... Um, overheated by favorable bounces at both ends of the rink. And, and as the sample expands, I, I do think you're going to come uh, to see that his sort of results will more closely match the process we've seen, which has still been good. He's still played well. It's just right now the results are, are a little bit too favorable to him. And if you pay him off that, I think you'll end up regretting it. So an interesting one to monitor, especially given how desirable this player is uh, in terms of what teams around the league value, but also in terms of how unique he is. Right, that there is a real, should be in my in my opinion anyway, a real impetus to keeping a player who's this hard to replace, this hard to find another six foot six guy who moves the puck as well as he does. Uh, let's get to lineup notes. Team day off. Team day off. Highly unlikely it seems that the Canucks would make significant changes given their results this weekend. Also, the Canucks roster is now frozen. For the holiday freeze. Woo! Big news. Can't, Canucks can't do anything basically to their roster aside from emergency call-ups, etc. until the 28th. So players get to enjoy their Christmas with no worry about trade alerts. And so do I. Uh, so that's a big moment for everybody, reporters and players alike. Um, Canucks also made a trade after we went off the air Friday. So I just want to quickly note this. Uh, Stadnika traded to the San Jose Sharks for a 2024 sixth round pick and defenseman Nick Sisek. Um, Canucks defense core in Abbotsford has been heavily banged up. So they effectively trade Stadnika, a guy who'd sort of done good work to reestablish himself as an option for this club. But but with, you know, Linus Carlson and, and Neil Zaman and, you know, even Archdeep Baines and Vasily Podkolzin and Hoaglander grabbing a hold of his opportunity. Like, where was Stanika going to be used again for this team? Um, I, I think it makes sense that the club would have looked at their forward depth and said, hey, you know, we've got some surplus here. Let's try to monetize it, you know, and, they, and they've done so. Stanika goes for a pick and a depth defenseman at the AHL level. Beauvillier goes for Zadorov or for the space that becomes Zadorov. I think that's sensible stuff across the board. I also want to note, you know, this team's traded a fair bit of futures in, in prospects and, and picks uh, to sort of make age gap type trades, right? The third goes for Dermott, the fifth goes for Bear. And because of injury issues that both of those players encountered, they weren't able to sort of make good or, or sort of turn around and recoup any value for those players, right? Bear becomes an unrestricted free agent, looks to be on the verge of signing with an Eastern Conference team. Um Dermot goes un untendered, leaves as an unrestricted free agent, playing pretty good hockey and making a difference in Arizona. With Stanika, though, club trades Myrenberg and 
Mike DiPietro for Stanika. He's on a one-way contract, and then they're able to get a sixth-round pick. Like, to me, that's good. It, you know, I, I saw some people praising the organization for, like, fixing a mistake in the Stanika deal, but I don't think it's a mistake to take a flyer on a high-pedigree guy for 12 months and then turn around to get 90% of the value that you paid back. Um, that's well worth seeing. And, and Stanika, you know, it didn't quite work out for him in Vancouver, but, man, did he show up at camp. Uh, like a man on a mission, and I won't be shocked to see him take this opportunity with the Sharks and, and run with it. I, I, do I think he's more than a bottom six player in the NHL? Probably not, but he's got the speed, the energy, the focus, the commitment you want to see, uh, and and earned a lot of respect from me anyway with the way that he took a pretty tough end to his season last year, uh, getting doghoused down the stretch by Rick Tockett, turned that into fuel and, and came into camp, won himself a job out of, out of camp, um, and ultimately has won him, uh, himself another NHL opportunity. Meanwhile, the club bolsters their AHL depth and saves uh, shaves a one-way salary off the books. That's good work from Canucks management. Playoff forecast, Canucks 95% to make the playoffs. Here's the thing. The model assumes at this point, right, that the Canucks are good and that they're going to beat teams like the Blackhawks. So when you beat a team like the Blackhawks, the model's not going to move significantly because the model already thinks the Canucks are good and will beat the Blackhawks, right? That's that's sort of where the Canucks are. It's really hard for them to tick the needle up further than where they have, um, but obviously it can sort of change the other direction if the club gives the model reason to be skeptical. So we're in sort of an um, asymmetrical position here in terms of this playoff forecast. The thing I'm more interested in tracking at this point is the chances of the Edmonton Oilers passing the Vancouver Canucks. Like, make no mistake, this Oilers team is firmly elite in terms of their profile. Their goaltending remains suspect, and that reared its head over the course of the weekend as the Oilers' eight-game winning streak came to an end. Nonetheless, the model is still giving the Oilers a 29% combined chance of finishing first, second, or third in the Pacific Division. So highly does this model think of the Oilers' chances. Meanwhile, it gives the Canucks a 20% chance still of finishing fourth or fifth in the Pacific. Um, unlikely, only a one-in-five shot, but I'm curious to track these two things because this isn't about moving goalposts, right? I know, you know, I, I didn't have a firm grasp on how good this team could be going into the season, admittedly. Keeps me up at night. It's not about moving goalposts so much as we have to adjust our standard because, like, out of respect for how many points that this Canucks team has accumulated. The question doesn't, the question no longer is interesting if it is, will this Canucks team make the playoffs? Yes, they will, almost surely, barring something cataclysmic. So we, so we have to kind of raise the bar here and, and start to ask questions like, is this team a contender, right? Is this team better than Edmonton? Right now, the standings would say yes unequivocally, but I do think the, I do think it's important to retain at least a hint of skepticism based on what this Oilers team has accomplished uh, over um, a several season timeline and their recent form. Right, even though they had a little bit of a slip here, I mean, this is a team that's won eight of their last ten. They are scary. Um, can they? Th like, I, this is also about the what's happened to the Pacific getting hollowed out as, outside of Edmonton. Like, there's no one else that can catch them really. I'm not I'm not buying Calgary or the Kraken as a team that can run the Canucks down and play at the 110-point pace required to do so. The Oilers are kind of the only team that even remotely fits that profile of a team even remotely capable of it. So that's what I'm going to track in the playoff forecast today. 
once again, Oilers with a 29% shot still of finishing in the top three uh, in the Pacific per Dom's model. Canucks, you know, 20% shot of finishing outside the top three. Um, betting markets, betting updates on the Canucks, you know, not a ton of change. The Canucks remain the betting favorites in a variety of individual awards markets. Um, Thatcher Demko remains the absolute odds-on favorite to win the Vesna. Rick Tockett remains the odds-on favorite to win the Jack Adams. Quinn Hughes, still the favorite to, to win the Norris. Um, Canucks are now down to minus 900 to make the playoffs. So finally, finally, it's taken two months. Finally, Vegas is at the point where there is no value to be had on betting the Canucks to make the playoffs. It took an awfully long time to get here, um, but Vegas, a believer at last in Vancouver. All right, that's going to do it for the whiteboard. We'll be back on the other side. We've got some great guests. We've got a great show for you. You're listening to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650.